Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, it, I think it was last week on Guide Talk, a question came in, and the question was, can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? So that became a real interesting question that we had some lively discussion on, and Dr. Greg Borgon said, you know, I'll, I'm going to take it a step deeper, and he's here today to talk about that very question. Can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? Greg, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Let's jump into this very yeah, it, interesting topic. It intrigued me. And so, you know, being <laughs> trying to always justify my compulsivity, I was compulsive about this, and I decided to do some research on it. No. And to go much deeper. What a oh, shock. Huh, Bill, what a shock. Surprising me once surprising, again. Surprising, surprising. Well, first of all, I think it's good for us to, to begin with looking at the phrase uh, book of life. Yeah, what does that mean? So the term book of life is actually found seven times in the Bible, once in Philippians 4.3. And six times in the book of Revelation. The same book of life is also called the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 13.8 and 21.27. Revelation 20.15 declares, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is the set of names of those who will live with God forever in heaven. It's the role of those who are saved. So, this book of life is also mentioned in Revelation 3.5, Revelation 20.12, and Philippians 4.3. The same book, as we mentioned, is also called the Lamb's Book of Life because it contains the names of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 13.8 and 21.27. So, how can you be sure your name is written in the book of life? Be sure you're saved. Repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and your name is will be in the book of life. So, back to our original question. Can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? The term blot or blotted out appears 56 times in 27 verses in the Bible, many of which have really nothing to do with our question. But for the sake of, of clarity, for instance, in Isaiah 43, 25, God tells us, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that a great promise? Oh, it's fantastic. And I love that he's blotting out our transgressions yes. for his sake. Because they were paid on the cross. Yep. It's done. We're justified. It's over. In Isaiah 44, 22, God tells Israel, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. In Acts 3.19, Peter tells people gathered near Solomon's portico to repent, therefore, and turn back in your sins so that your sins may be blotted out. So these verses underscore the fact that God does not hold our sins against us once they're covered by the blood of the Lamb. He, he does not hold our sins against us. That's something to celebrate. Hebrews 8.12 further underscores this issue. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, 
and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jeremiah 31, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Then again in Romans 4, 7, and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And finally in Isaiah 38, 17, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. So that's all a great hope. Good news, Dr. All good Greg news. Borgon. All yeah, good news. that's really good news. And you've heard me say on the show before, it's the enemy that will always remind us of the sins of our past. Mm-hmm. God wants to bring us to the victory of the future and the struggles in the present, but God is God and Satan is not. So let's go back to our question again. With regard to the question, there's three specific passages that are relevant with the phrase blotted out. Let's look at the first one. In Exodus 32, verse 31 through 33, now in this passage, Moses condemns the golden calf worshipped by the Israelites while he was on the mountain with God. And he says to them, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And now if you forgive their sin, but if not, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, that kind of seems kind of scary. Yeah. But let's go on. You got my attention now. In Psalm 69, 27 and 28, David pleads with the Lord to destroy his enemies. He says, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So while English uh, translations usually translate the Hebrew phrase as the book of life, it can be literally translated as the book of living ones. Thus rendering, uh, uh, this rendering, of course, suggests that David's request would simply be that God would take their lives. Now in the book of Revelation, Jesus dictates seven letters to the seven churches located in modern-day Turkey. Five received condemnation from the Lord, while two were commended. To the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This is Jesus talking to the church, dictating it. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, which stands for purity, for they are worthy. Then one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and this is important, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as you're listening, folks, you might still be confused and, and, and think for a minute, well, it sounds like it's possible for our names to be blotted out from the book of life. 
So how can we reconcile these verses that seem to imply that our names can be blotted out from the book of life? Do these verses imply that a Christian once saved can lose their salvation and be blotted out from the book of life? Well, first and foremost, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, all our sins are forgiven and we receive eternal life. So there's no um, uh, judgment against us because they've all been covered, past, present, and future. First John 1.7. But if I walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's a great promise there, too. It is. From the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, John 19.30. No other sacrifice had ever be needed. Sin, all sin, has been atoned for. In John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And of course, people's, many people's favorite passage, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the passage for me, Bill, that really drives this point home, that I have eternal life, that my assurance of salvation is secure, is found in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And here's what it says. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So our assurance of salvation is assured. Uh, eternal salvation is secure. Well, let's go back again to our question. Can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? The short answer is no. Yay. <laughs> okay, what about these verses that seem to suggest that our names can be blotted out? The ones we just went over, Bill, Exodus 32, 31 through 33, Psalm 69, 27 and 28, and of course the letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, 1 through 5. Now, now this is going to be interesting. Respected biblical teachers and scholars suggest that every person's name starts out in the book of life and are only blotted out when a person rejects Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God writes everyone's name according to this position in the book of life, when they are conceived or born, in the hopes that they will embrace salvation, and only blots people's names out of the book if, they're def if they definitely reject salvation. When is that point of no return reached? Only the Lord knows, but the Bible says the Lord knows whose are his. So the argument goes that this position explains why infants who die and the mentally handicapped are able to enter heaven. They have not attained the capacity of accountability. Therefore, their names have not been removed. Hmm. So, in other words, you keep your name from being removed by trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord. So, that's what that position talks about. However, some other scriptures seem to suggest 
that names may be written into rather than blotted out from the book of life. Revelation 17, 8, 9, for instance. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So this particular passage seems to suggest that not everyone's name is originally written in, in, uh, from the start. But notice in this passage that it doesn't say is never written in the book, is not. It says it is not currently written in the book of life. So in the final analysis, if you hold to this position that your name once recorded in the book of life is blotted out because of your rejection of Jesus Christ and is no longer found in that book. In Revelation 20, 15, if, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of the fire. What I find interesting, Bill, about this passage is it actually talks about being written in. It just doesn't appear, doesn't get dumped on there. It's actually written into what's called the book of life. So in any case, Scripture regarding blotting out in no way suggests, and I want everyone to hear this clearly, in no way suggests that a believer can lose their salvation and their name blotted out from the book of life. Even if we agree with the position that all persons' names start out in the book of life at conception or birth and are only removed or blotted out when they definitively reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the associated passages have nothing to do with losing your salvation. All right. We're going to take a little break. And it's such an interesting discussion we're having with Dr. Greg Borgon. And the topic is, can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? We're going to take a short break and be right back. Giveaway. I don't know if, the, if that's three words or three syllables. I'm not sure it matters. What really matters is we are giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Closer Than Your Next Breath. Where is God when you need him most? If you have ever wondered about hearing the voice of God or is feeling good the same as feeling God? Is, is there anything I can do when God seems silent? All of that is covered in Susie's new book. And if you want to get in on the drawing, you can enter to win your copy now. You can do it at myfaithradio.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Greg Borgon as my guest, also my friend. We're talking about, can your name get blotted, interesting word, out of the book of life? We talked about what the book of life is. We talked about the idea that your name can be blotted out. Here's a thought that I don't think I've had until today where certain respected Bible teachers and scholars have suggested that every person's name starts out in the book of life. And then are only blotted out when a person rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So, Greg, I just have to say that I, I have to sit on that one for a little while because that is a first-time thought for me. 
Yeah, I, it, it was for me, too. And I was listening recently to some messages on the book of Revelation by Gary Hamrick, who is the senior pastor of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. He's an excellent Bible teacher. And also read an article uh, that was written by Dr. Christopher R. Smith, who is the consulting editor to the International Bible Society, now called Biblica, for the books of the Bible in addition to the uh, New International Version. So these are no lightweights that made this suggestion. Now, they weren't, they weren't saying that um, absolutely. They were saying that it seems to imply trying to reconcile, as we've been doing, these verses about blotting out the name and how could that be? Why would, you know, one of the questions they raised, Bill, is why would the Bible even say that if it wasn't a possibility? Right. So then the scary thought is, does that mean that me as a safe person, can name can be blotted out? And the answer is, as we said, absolutely not. We have assurance of salvation, especially as you look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But the position, just to state it clearly again, says that everyone's name at conception or birth is written into the book of life, and they are only blotted out when they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And as we said, you know, it's hard for us as humans because now we see darkly to determine when if somebody is really saved, but it's, it's not a, uh, in doubt with God. He knows it because he knows the heart. He knows, as it says in Scripture, who are his. So who knows where that point is? But in, when somebody definitively, unequivocally rejects Jesus Christ, then they are blotted out. From that, and so the, we we raise the issue. Well, how can you ensure that you're not blotted out? Well, the qu- answer is receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, mm-hmm. and you have eternal security. So that's that's pretty powerful. So, Doctor Christopher Smith, the one I've just talked about, states that if we have genuinely trusted in Jesus, we never have to wonder whether He knows that. And will honor it. As he said to the people of Sardis, I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Isn't that interesting that every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, God will honor our name and it'll be written or it is in the book of life. Whether you agree with the position or not, the fact is your name is in the book of life. Those that reject Jesus, their name is not in the book of life. So rest assured, uh, uh, folks, that your eternal security is intact. Jesus assures us in John 10, 28, and 30, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, which talks about the deity, of course, that mm-hmm. Jesus is God in the flesh. So, Greg, when you consider this idea now that your name starts in the book of life and then gets blotted out, it seems to me as you're taking your last breath of life on earth is when the blotting out happens. Because well, it would yeah. seem to me that God is going to be patient and give everyone a chance, like the thief on the cross, to say, would you remember me? So that must be a transaction that happens at the end of life. 
Yeah, he, he's not anxious that any should perish. I mean, for those of us who are currently living in the current set of affairs that we're experiencing, the, the world seeming to get darker and darker, um, we would love for Christ to come right now. And for many of us, we struggle with the idea, why doesn't God jump into the middle of this and solve this problem? Well, his patience is there because he doesn't. He wants all to have an opportunity to come to a saving knowledge. Now, whether or not it's at the very last minute, of course, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, will give us an opportunity right up to the very last minute. But there are some who have reached that point before death, I think, Bill, who have definitively rejected Christ, and only God knows they've crossed the Maginot Line, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah. But what about the people that are still not sure, and they, they get a, a, a meeting or a message with somebody at, in the last hour of their life, and somebody says, you can, you can be saved now by believing. Absolutely right. So All then, you need to do is to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, um, appropriate the forgiveness that was guaranteed at the cross, acknowledge that you need a Savior, and ask him to come into your life. That's it. Yeah. And that could happen at the very last 15 seconds True. of a person's life. Yeah. You're not able to follow him at that point, but you're able to repent and be saved at that point. Yeah. and, and Much like the that, thief on the cross. And that that's a demonstration to me, Bill, of God's amazing grace right up to the very end. Yeah. That he gives us that opportunity. I've always been fascinated with Hebrews 8.12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I remember when I first read that as a teenager, I thought, wait, this is so cool. God can't remember stuff? (laughs) (laughs) He forgets? Well, he's the only one that can blot it out and put it behind him. We can't as human beings because we remember. Right. And and so it's, it's either we're remembering because we've been shamed by the enemy who reminds us of the failures of our past, or uh, we're convicted of the sin that is still unconfessed, or we acknowledge the fact that the travesties that we have perpetrated, um, God has embraced and taken care of at the foot of the cross. And so we remember those where we were and acknowledge and thank God for where we currently are. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea, Greg, that scripture teaches that he will never hold our sin against us because we have been forgiven and he will remember our sin no more. And I think when you lay your head on the pillow, you can feel incredible joy that you've been (laughs) redeemed and rescued and saved and set apart and your sins will never, ever be held against you. And he is merciful toward your wrongdoings. This yeah. is a God who loves you. I mean, even at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for Christians, you're not going to have paraded in front of you in front of these uh, cam TV and in sight of everybody in heaven, all of your past sins. No. Because they're forgiven. Not to mention, I can't imagine the soil of sin would enter heaven. We're not going to be looking at sinful behavior in heaven. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's just for the reward. Yeah. All right, Greg. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much. Can a believer's name be blotted out from the book of life? That was our topic today with Dr. Greg Borgon. You can always learn more about him at heartofawarrior.org. We're going to take a little break and we come back. Dr. Cal Beisner is going to join the program and we're going to talk about 
created to reign. He's from the Cornwall Alliance. So we'll be taking a short break, and you can bet we'll be right back. I'm guessing if you're like me, you hear a lot about climate change nowadays, and there's a lot of fear-mongering going on, and it's hard to know what's true and what isn't. And I'm always glad when I get a chance to talk to Dr. Cal Beisner because he sorts it out for me, and he's actually taken it to a next level and has created um, his own podcast, which is really good. I listened to it uh, the last couple of days, and uh, he, uh, with a colleague, a colleague, Dr. David Leggetts, Leggetts, I think, I don't, know if I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. They talk about science and economics and theology and ethics and public policy, and they tr- strive to do that in a biblical way as they talk about creation care, global warming, and the world's poor. Nice to have you back on, Cal. Thanks very much. Yeah. Congratulations on the podcast. You guys sound good, and I recommend it only if... You've listened to every one of my podcasts. Then you can go listen to Created to Rain. <laughs> well, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. So we try. Yeah. But nice job. You can go uh, subscribe on any platform that you get podcasts. You can just uh, type in Created to Rain and you'll get uh, uh, Cal and you'll hear his brilliance. Uh, so let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about just what's going on with like this summer. Uh, are the summer's heat waves extraordinary? Uh, they're fairly extraordinary, yes, but they're not really uh, what unprecedented. They're not devastating. They're not something just out of uh, left field. This kind of thing happens from time to time. Actually, if you go to the EPA's website, you can find a page where uh, they they actually show the uh, average, uh, let's see, the, the the high temps for about 1920 to the present, mm-hmm. and the hottest decade on record uh, was the 1930s. Uh, now, you have to be careful because the page actually begins with a chart that only goes from the 1960s to the present. Interesting. And it looks like the present is by far the hottest. But that's because they cut it off at the 1960s. You have to scroll down farther on the page and find a blurry little tiny link to a different figure. And in that figure, they go back to the 1920s. And there you see that the 1930s were way, way hotter than any decade since then. So kind of have to be careful with your sources. Yeah, well, it has been uh, warm this summer, but Again, yeah. you, you see these weather maps and you see all the red and you start to feel like you're getting a lot of um, propaganda yeah. uh, given because, like you said, this is not the hottest summer on record. 
Yeah, there's, there's a dirty little secret uh, among meteorologists. All of them know this. Climatologists all know this, but most of them don't like to talk about it. The entire climate system has only a certain total amount of energy in it. Now, that total amount of energy is actually rising very, very slightly as our greenhouse gases uh, hold a little bit more of the energy that comes in from the sun so slightly that uh, it's it's barely even noticeable. But nonetheless, to be theoretically sound, I have to admit this. Uh, but at any rate, <laughs> there is at any time only a certain total amount of energy in our climate system. What that means is that if it's extra hot at location A, it must be correspondingly extra cold at some other location, right? Uh, in other words, when we have a bunch of uh, heat waves uh, here in the United States, there are going to be other parts of the, of the world that are colder than usual. And what happens is that since the climate change catastrophist narrative is all about the world getting hotter, they report about the heat waves and they ignore the cold waves. Okay, that is, yeah, that's like you say, a dirty little trick that if they're not talking about that, they're yeah. not giving us the, the whole picture. Um, yeah. And how, how do we get education on things like this besides tuning into uh, created terrain? Well, <laughs> so glad you asked. Uh, of course, at cornwallalliance.org, our website, we have a variety of different major studies and lots of short articles uh, we also publish an email newsletter that people can sign up for there at cornwallalliance.org. We have a very active Facebook page. We are at Cornwall Steward on Twitter, now called X. Uh, but uh, we've got a number of different ways of, of uh, getting these things. And we just keep putting out the, uh, the new education all the time. Uh, you know, Bill, one of the things that that has become very, very clear is that belief in catastrophic uh, global warming or catastrophic climate change, climate change crisis, is not driven by science. It is driven instead by uh, basically pseudo-religious culture of radical environmentalism. And that's been shown in a marvelous uh, book recently published by Andy West called The Grip of Culture, The Social Psychology of Climate Change Catastrophism. And he demonstrates from scores of opinion polls that fears of catastrophic climate change rest not on science, but on the growing pseudo-religious culture of environmentalism. It's, it's quite a fascinating book. But that's the kind of thing that stands behind uh, for instance, the, the statement by uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist uh, John Clausen, uh, or Clauser rather, that the world is awash in uh, scientific misinformation uh, about climate change. Or, for instance, um, uh, the journalist and policy analyst Oren Cass, who says, and here's a direct quote, the climate change debate has entered what we might call the campfire phase, in which the goal is to tell the scariest story. Mm. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of uh, 
climate activists do. That's a lot uh, what a lot of politicians do. That's a, what a lot of uh, uh, journalists do. We try to provide not scary stories, but good, solid facts. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cal Beisner is my guest. He is the founder and president of the Cornwall Alliance. You can learn more about him at cornwallalliance.org. So, Cal, I mean, most people, regular people, we've got lives to lead and bills to pay and things to do and kids to raise. Uh, What do regular people think about climate change? Well, um, I think an awful lot of people are really, really frightened, especially young people, millennials and and Zoomers. Uh, There actually have been a number of psychological studies published in journals about how frightened these people are. And it's it's a terrible shame. Uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson has talked about this in some of his uh, podcasts. Uh, it's a terrible shame because, first of all, of course, the science doesn't support these fears. But second, it's leading these young people to make really sad decisions. Uh, many of them, for instance, are deciding we're not going to have children. Uh, because we don't want to bring a child into a world that is going to be absolutely miserable 50 years from now or 80 years from now, uh, or some of them think even shorter time from now. Uh, now, the, the fact is that mainstream climate science doesn't support any of that. Hmm. You can even go to the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and go to its technical scientific reports, not its press releases, <laughs> Not the public statements by UN officials, not the summaries for policymakers. You go to the technical scientific reports and you find you never find language like crisis or catastrophe or existential threat. Here's what you do find. You find that according to those technical scientific reports, it is most likely that at the end of the century, all of mankind will be multiple times wealthier than it is today. And then they say, well, climate change is going to make people a little less well-off than they otherwise would be, but that's a little bit of a better-off that's already, well, for the highly developed world, two or three times better-off than now for the, the poor world today. They expect the poor world uh, of today to be five to seven times better off by the end of this century than it is now. Now, the fact is that wealth, a greater wealth than what we have today in the United States, allows people to protect themselves from anything related to climate, which is why over the last hundred years, the uh, the average rate of of human mortality from climate-related uh, disasters, uh, floods, droughts, hurricanes, etc., the average number of people killed by uh, weather disasters per year has fallen by more than 99%. Wow. And that's even during the same time the total population has roughly quadrupled, <laughs> which means that the rate has yeah. fallen by 99.9-some percent. Uh, this is because wealth protects people from weather. Wow, that is so interesting. Dr. Cal Beisner is my, my guest. Now, Cal, as a believer and follower of Jesus, when you hear other environmentalists who you know claim to be 
uh, Christians as well, and you hear the biblical interpretations they use to support some theories. What is your response? How well are they doing that? Well, not well at all. Um, you know, in fact, really, biblically, there's a whole lot more evidence in Scripture that we need not fear climate change than that we should. In fact, I think there's none that we should fear climate change. I mean, let's let's think about this for just a moment. The God who created heaven and earth with a word, we read about that in Genesis 1, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, when he became man, calmed wind and storm with a word— we see that in Luke 8 and various other places in the Gospels, who promised that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease, Genesis 8, 22, and who enclosed the sea with doors and made a cloud its garment and placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and said, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. That's Job 38, 8 through 11. That very same God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we will not fear Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. That's Psalm 46, 1 through 3. Uh, The scripture tells us that if we trust God, we need fear nothing else. But you know, there's a really interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter 5, and I don't have that right in front of me, so I'm going to have to paraphrase here. But uh, Jeremiah very clearly in chapter 5 tells us that the reason why the people of Israel in this late period, not long before the captivity, uh, were fearful of so many other things, including bad weather, bad climate, bad harvests, etc., including even uh, sea level rise. Way back then, they were afraid of it. The reason they're afraid of these things is that they don't fear God. Mm -hmm. If people feared God, they would need fear nothing nothing else. So, I mean, this is, I think, the very, very consistent testimony of Scripture. Uh, There is, frankly, nothing in Scripture that supports the notion that man-made climate change is somehow going to be a great catastrophe, an existential threat, or anything like that. Now, the Scripture does tell us, though, that we are supposed to Uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything in it, Genesis 1.28. It tells us that we are supposed to uh, cultivate and guard the garden and expand that garden out to the rest of the world. So as we put it at the Cornwall Alliance, our job is to enhance the fruitfulness, the beauty, and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Um, uh, The scripture tells, uh, does tell us all of these things, And of course, this means that we should be careful against uh, poisonous pollutants, uh, you know, toxic chemicals and things like that. Mm -hmm. We should be careful uh, not to release those things into places where people can be exposed to them. And frankly, we've gotten better and better at that over the over the decades, over the generations. Uh, We frankly live in a much cleaner world today than we did 20, 40, 60 and far longer years before. Mm-hmm. Cal, you're talking like a guy who's got the corner office at the Cornwall Alliance. 
<laughs> I bet you do, don't you? Well, let's see. Actually, I am in a corner of my study in my home, but the Cornwall Alliance, in order to save money, doesn't have an office somewhere. Uh, Each of us working with Cornwall Alliances works out of a home. I figured. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, Cal, I want to ask you about, I hear this net zero. I, when I hear that, I go, what does that mean? If people want to get to net zero, I want to see if you can help me uh, understand that better. Dr. Cal Beisner okay. is my guest. You can learn more about him at cornwallalliance.org, cornwallalliance.org. I recommend you going there and checking it out. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. My guest is Dr. Cal Beisner, talking today about climate change and some other topics. This whole idea of net zero I hear about, we want to be net zero by 2035 or 2050. What does all that net zero talk mean, Cal? Uh, not a lot. Well, <laughs> a lot, but it's not going to come to a lot. Okay. Uh, what net zero means, it's a shorthand for saying all the carbon dioxide we put into the atmosphere has to be matched by carbon dioxide that we take out of the atmosphere. All right. That's the basic idea. And the reason for that is that uh, some people think that adding carbon, di carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is causing dangerous, uh, critical, catastrophic global warming because carbon dioxide is what's called a greenhouse gas or more technically an infrared absorbing gas. And uh, so they think that we've already warmed too much, which is rather strange since uh, we, we've just been coming out of the little ice age, which was really a pretty terrible time during which to live. Uh, but they think we've warmed too much already and that we need to stop this. And, and they want to try to stop the warming at one and a half degrees uh, Celsius compared with pre-industrial times. We're almost there. So they want to go to net zero uh, additions of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. You can add some, but you have to take the same amount out. There is absolutely no way that this is going to happen by 2030 or by 2050 or by any time after that. And it's a good thing too, for two reasons. The, the biggest things that add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that humans do are the use of fossil fuels and the production of steel, concrete, uh, and, and other materials that are absolutely <laughs> fundamental, essential to a life that is above the stage of subsistence agriculture, which, by the way, uh, generally gave life expectancy at birth of about 27 years, uh, whereas now in the developed world, it's about 80, and in the world as a whole, it's about 70. Um, but we need these things. Uh, and there is not the mining capacity and there will not be the mining capacity in the next 50 years to get enough cobalt, enough lithium, enough copper, enough various other minerals out of the earth 
to build enough wind turbines and solar panels to replace all of the coal, natural gas, uh, uh, electric power generating stations around the world, or to replace <laughs> oil-based transportation fuels around the world. Mm. We cannot do it. There have been a number of different uh, major studies done that say we simply cannot get that many minerals. It takes far more mining of far more minerals to produce a given amount of electricity from wind and solar than it does to produce the same amount of electricity from uh, from coal or natural gas. That's something that the other side doesn't like people to know, but it's true. So, no, we're not going to reach net zero. The The other reason it's a good thing that we're not is that, frankly, the, the world needs more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, at 170 parts per million, all plant life dies. We were down to about 280 parts per million just before the Industrial Revolution. Now we're up to about 420 parts per million. But the most verdant periods in Earth's history have been periods when CO2 made it to about uh, seven to 10,000 parts wow. per million. So we're talking, you know, more than 20 times what it is today. And by the way, those periods were not exceedingly hot. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, some of them were cooler than now. So clearly carbon dioxide is not the control knob for global temperature. But why do we need more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Because plants use it for photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. And the more of it there is, the better they grow. For every doubling of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures, which means if we're getting warmer, we want more CO2 in the atmosphere, right? Mm -hmm. Plants grow better in wetter and drier soil. They make better use of water, of soil nutrients. They resist diseases and pests better. And what all that means is they expand their ranges. They grow in warmer and cooler places, in higher and lower altitudes. And that means that more areas become uh, profitably farmable, which means that we make food less expensive for people all over the world. Further... As plants increase their range, all of the animals, all the bugs, all of the birds, everything that depends on plants gets to increase its range, which means that we reduce the pressure toward uh, extinction of species. Mm. So more CO2 in the atmosphere is a really good thing. Yeah, that's really a reality wake-up call. We just have a couple of minutes left, Cal, and I, you know, I hear that we've got these demands on the on the uh, the electrical grid and maybe i'm just ignorant of how electricity comes to us could you explain that well join the crowd most okay, people good. have <laughs> most people have no idea how it happens uh, if if people really want to get a grasp of this there is a marvelous book called uh, a, a matter of power a matter of power uh, by by uh, uh, Robert Bryce, and that book is available through Cornwall Alliance's online store. 
actually, I think it's actually a question of power. Anyway, it'll be obvious if people go to cornwallalliance.org slash shop, they can find this. This book explains how the entire process of getting electricity from nowhere to your outlet in your home works from the mining of, of, uh, of uh, natural gas or coal or oil to the building of electric power plants, to the building of the grid, to how the power plants work, to the maintenance of the grid. All of these things are really, really incredibly complex, but they're understandable in Bryce's book. And what's worrisome is that so many climate alarmist people want to try to exchange uh, gas and coal-fired power plants for wind and solar when wind and solar are intermittent and they cannot provide the 24-7, 365, nonstop uh, electric power that is uh, so essential to human health and, mm -hmm. and long life. Um, when we put more of those into the grid, we destabilize the grid and we're going to cause more frequent and longer and wider power blackouts around the United States. Already, we're seeing this happening in states like California and Texas, and even where I live in Tennessee. Not too long ago, we had some that were related to the fact that because our utility has been adding wind and solar, it hasn't had the money necessary to maintain the the grid in a, a, a good in a robust way. So when we had a severe storm in early June, 83% of customers were without power uh, from anywhere from about two days to uh, over seven days. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And that's kind of like third world living. Mm -hmm. So no, we we need to uh, to avoid the siren song of yeah. the climate alarmists. Cal, you do this every time you, uh, you come on the show. You talk like a smart scientist. Thank you so much for coming on <laughs> once again. Well, thank you very much. Delight for having, having me on. you. Yep. Learn more about Cal at CornwallAlliance.org. He's got some great offers there, and his new podcast, Created to Rain. Get that on whatever podcast you uh, pick up. We're going to take a break, and then Dr. Ian Paul is going to be on the show all the way from the UK. I can hardly wait. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.